You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Dave Ahern. I'm Andrew Sather, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I'm a horrible stock picker. In fact, so horrible that I usually limit myself to broad-based index funds. But I wasn't always so aware of my lack of talent. In fact, one of my first buys to fund my Roth IRA at the beginning of my career was in an assisted living facility my grandmother lived in. My stepfather had always told me to invest in what you know, and I was impressed with how this national organization ran. After all, my grandma was doing really well. Ten years later, that Roth IRA balance was lower than the initial few thousand dollars I had invested in the first place. Was my suboptimal stock picking a surprise? I knew nothing about the industry, nothing about the company. I hadn't looked at a single financial summary or balance sheet. I just anchored on one questionable piece of investing advice because, well, it was easy. And I like easy. But maybe that's the problem with beginners of all sorts, including investing. We don't know what we don't know, and we don't know where to start. Hey, everybody, I'm going to do something today that I rarely do. I'm going to ask you a favor. For the next two months, I am doing a survey on Earn and Invest. This will help me figure out how to best serve you, my audience, as well as let's tell the truth, there are going to be some advertisements on the show. So I'd like to make sure those advertisements at least fit you and who you are. In order to do that, we need to know more about you. If you go to earnandinvest.com slash survey, again, that's earnandinvest.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. It'll only take a few minutes. Tell us about yourself, and then we can make Earn and Invest a better podcast and have it fit your needs better. On top of that, Airwave Media is going to enter you to win a $500 Amazon gift card if you go ahead and tell us about yourselves. Go to earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, this will be for the next few months, and I would totally appreciate it if you would check it out. Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern first started the Investing for Beginners podcast in 2017. Although they believe the stock market is intimidating and confusing, it is key to attaining financial freedom. They are driven to help you decode the jargon of the market, investing, and finance. Andrew and Dave, welcome to Earn and Invest. Andrew, I want to start with you. What is the worst stock pick you ever made? I mean, like a real big dog in your portfolio. <laughs> I guess the one that just pops in my head as soon as you say those words, right? With painful throngs in my brain. <laughs> I bought 
Carnival cruise ships probably two, three months right before the pandemic hit. So I bought it. It dropped like 60%. It hit one of my automatic sell rules. And that was a really painful thing to see 150 bucks turn into like, you know, $60 in a very fast time. So that one, that one really hurt. Dave, I feel like every successful investor I know has one of these stories, right? We bought way too high and we sold way too low. What was your story? Oh boy. Mine was GameStop. Now this is prior to the whole GameStop craziness. So before all the, you know, to the moon stuff, (laughs) GameStop was like one of the, I guess, deep value investor pet favorites. Everybody was looking at this company because they all thought it was undervalued and it had this strong balance sheet and they could turn the company around and I learned the hard way, like Warren Buffett has said many times, turnarounds don't very often turn. And that is what happened to me. And I bought way too high. And kind of like Andrew, I saw most of it turn to dust. And I ended up selling for for probably about a 70% loss by the time I got out of the company. And again, this was way before the whole the meme stop thing, mean stock thing became a thing. So yeah, I got I got burned hard by that. Dave, if you had just held on, (laughs) (laughs) you had just held on longer, (laughs) you would have done so well. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Andrew, all joking aside, why is the stock market so intimidating for new investors? Because I see this all the time and certainly it was my experience when I went and bought that assisted living facility stock. Why are we so intimidated by the market? I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that can feel like a casino sometimes there can be a lot of jargon and there are underlying businesses within the stock market but the language of business is accounting and who wants to learn that so it it is very intimidating because accounting's intimidating and there's a lot of jargon and and it's constantly changing too so you get that whole aspect on top of everything else and then you try to dive in and take a bite of the pizza and it's like it's like getting the entire ocean flowing inside your building. It's 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 quite a lot to process. Like trying to drink from a fire hose is what we used to say about medical school when you're trying to learn all the information. Andrew, you said the magic word there, casino. You said it's like a casino. Is it ever an actual casino? I mean, for some people, do they use it in the same way? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I I'd made that mistake too. Also around the time of the pandemic, I decided, hey, I've got some extra money. I just got a new job and and it's a lot more money than I was used to. Let me let me get creative and earn some extra income off of it. So I started trading options right before the market bottomed and learned again very painfully how quickly a couple thousand dollars can evaporate from options trading and People do that all of the time and people will day trade, they'll use leverage. A lot of the things that we try to preach that you don't do, particularly if you're talking about your hard-earned money. So yeah, people can trade it, treat it like a casino all of the time. I look at it more as a place to invest in a business for the long term. And because I believe in it's a very optimistic view, I know, but I essentially believe in the power of humans being able to innovate and be productive and wanting to improve themselves. So over the long term, I think the economy will be bigger. And so I invest in the stock market because if the economy is bigger, the businesses in the economy will be bigger. 
And if you treat it in that way, then it's very much not like a casino because I don't know how many people sit in a casino for 40 years uh, watching the paint dry. <laughs> Dave, is a failure a must if you're going to be a successful investor? I'm thinking about Andrew just talking about options trading. Our common friend, Brian, for all the of the Motley Fool talks about he first got into penny stocks and it all blew up in his face. Is this something we just have to go through? And if so, tell us about kind of some of your early failures. I think part of learning is by failing. And I think sometimes, especially in the stock market, there's an educational process that we all have to go through. And some of the psychological barriers that can prevent us from improving can be things like ego, or we can fall into the FOMO trap, you know, the fear of missing out or the, the fear of not getting in when everybody else is getting rich kind of thing. And I think a lot of times when people get into the market, they, uh, unfortunately, most of them do it at the wrong time. They do it when everything is going up and they think that they can get in and they can make a lot of money very quickly. And if you look at the richest people in history, as well as the richest people on the planet today, they're all business owners. They all own their own companies. They all they all own stocks, and it that combination of owning a business. That Andrew and I preach this all the time. Owning stocks is part of is being a part owner of a business, and that help when you think of it that way, it helps you move away from the casino idea or the idea of getting rich quickly. And yes, there are going to be people that are going to get lucky and will hit a big with one thing and maybe make a lot of money, but that is a very very rare case. And the majority of people that make the vast majority of their money do it over a long period of time. Warren Buffett, arguably the greatest investor in the history of investing, has earned the majority of his income in the last 10 to 15, 20 years. And he's been investing for a very long time. And I'm not saying that to discourage people, but I'm, I'm telling you that that's the way to get wealthy is over a long period of time and doing it consistently. And yes, having failures, making mistakes is is the best way to learn. And especially if you learn from those mistakes, Warren Buffett has had plenty of mishaps along the way. He bought IBM, which turned out not to be a great investment. He bought Dexter Shoes, which ended up going bankrupt. So not a great investment for him. So all the, along the way, and yes, I've had plenty of missteps. I, brought pay, I bought PayPal about two and a half years ago, right at the height of the pandemic, because I thought the way that people were going to buy and spend and use their money was going to change. And I think it is, but it's going to be a lot slower than I thought it was going to be. And so I bought it way too expensive and now it's down 70%. I still own the company. I still believe that it's going to be a great company one day, but it, it didn't do as well as I thought it would. And so, you know, sometimes you make mistakes with your thesis and that's why Andrew and I preach this idea of margin of safety, because that helps alleviate some of these struggles of making mistakes or, or being over you know enthusiastic about a particular company it's very easy to fall in love with a stock whether it's starbucks whether it's paypal whether it's microsoft it, you, you know insert name it's very easy to, to do that and but i think learning from our mistakes learning from what we did wrong and how we were wrong in our assessments helps you become a better investor in the long run Andrew, we're talking about being a better investor, and Dave and I have just been talking about kind of experiential learning, right? You fall on your face, you do it wrong, you learn better the next time. You know, the other side of that is modeling, and I'm wondering if you had some real role models when it came to investing when you first got into it and started maturing as an investor. Yeah, of course. I mean, 
we wouldn't be where we were today without the shoulders of giants who came before us. So for me, a guy named Peter Lynch from Fidelity, he wrote a couple great books that really inspired me to get into the stock market. A guy named Benjamin Graham, who is Warren Buffett's teacher, taught about this concept of a margin of safety. So, you know, margin of safety, it's not some concept me and Dave magically came up with. <laughs> you in, didn't, you didn't come air. up with that on your own? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we did add the emphasis on the safety part, right? But right. It's, 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 a, it's one of those simple principles. And those same principles are used and applied in different markets and different business environments. So Benjamin Graham used that in his time. Frankly, back in his time was right after the Great Depression. And a lot of those businesses were terrible. So the way he applied the margin of safety was to kind of assume that this business is going to go bankrupt. And a lot of those did back then. Warren Buffett took it and kind of evolved it to his environment that he was in, buying great businesses like Coca-Cola that were benefiting from the globalization that US stocks had. And we're trying to do that today with the different stocks that we buy in the environment that we're in. I've learned from that principle and and I've seen it with so many other investors that we followed and that have found success before us that you can look at different great investors and take take good ideas from them but also when you see a concept that's being used over and over and over again like buying with a margin of safety or buying for the long term or buying great businesses instead of just mediocre businesses when you see a lot of great investors making a lot of money doing that then you pay attention and that's i feel like how you can learn a lot of the benefits of investing without necessarily taking as many of your own mistakes dave it's interesting is andrew was talking about this he brought up a, a bunch of names benjamin graham you know warren buffett peter lynch i mean these are people who fit different generational modes lived partially at different times or maybe had their peak investing years at different times it really begs the question of how universal this knowledge is. I mean, today in 2023 is very different than when Warren Buffett started. It's certainly different from when Benjamin Graham was investing. I mean, are there a set of universal principles that we can hang our hat on, or is this more of a moving target? I feel like that there is a set of principles that you can set, you can kind of put your hat on. Things will move around it, but the idea of buying a buying a company you're investing in a business buying a, you know investing in a business that has growing revenues growing cash flows uh, a strong balance sheet those are all timeless ideas and i think when you look at at different businesses yes the the top businesses of today are vastly different than when benjamin graham was was you know cutting his teeth and in investing but the idea of buying a company that is generating revenue, is growing cash flows, has produced a product or service that people enjoy, like, and, and embrace, that's no different than it was 50, 70 years ago. And so those same ideas are, are still the you know, There's this very famous phrase in, in the stock market that, you know, this time is different. And every time we say that, it's never, quote, say, it's never different. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at cycles of just about anything, you know, what was old comes back around again. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect case in point. When I was younger, you know, I'm 56. So when I was, you know, in my 20s, there was this, you know, layaway program that was super popular. And people would go and you could pay money towards buying Christmas presents early 
And then once you paid it off, you, you took it home. Well, they evolved that now to something that's called buy now, pay later. And basically what that is, is you take the product home and then you make installment payments on it after you take it home. It's the exact same thing as what it was when I was 20, but they, they packaged it and wrapped it like it was something, you know, vastly different. And it's really not, it's, it's, you know, it's a credit extension. And so it, it, I think that just shows that, you know, what was old is still new and what's new is still old. I mean, the, the, the basic ideas around why successful investors are successful today versus, 20 years ago versus 50 years ago and, and 50 years down the road are, are all going to be the same, you know, buying great companies, buying them at a price that makes sense, finding management that you trust and finding a company with a moat, which means that it has a strong competitive advantage, a company like Apple with their iPhone. You think about what's going to disrupt that. Well, at this point, we don't see anything on the horizon that could, but Nokia with their smartphones back then didn't see that coming either. But that's part of investing is you have to kind of you have to pay attention to those things. And, and that's but that hasn't changed from the days of the railroads and, and oil barons controlling the markets to technology today. That's this is still the same principle. Andrew, the name of your podcast is Investing for Beginners. We're going to talk about some advice in a moment for beginners. But before I do, when did you stop feeling like you were a beginner when it came to investing? Was there some transitional point where you said, okay, I'm no longer a novice. I kind of understand how things work. <laughs> I think if anything, I made the mistake of thinking I knew everything way too quickly. And <laughs> it was more of a case of knowing enough to be dangerous. So what's great about something like picking individual stocks is the learning never stops is something that Dave always likes to talk about is like you can be constantly curious and it's a great intellectual challenge because to Dave's point, the technology companies of today are different than those from a decade ago and the ones we'll see in 10 years will be way different than that. And there's so many other lessons and principles you can take even from other fields, whether it's biology or psychology, these things can all be applied to finding great investments. So it's a very intellectually stimulating thing. As far as when did I lose the beginner's badge and get my my investor carrying card? I don't know if if you can ever say that. But one of the things that when Dave and I started the podcast was we were just kind of going to share as we learned. And that's kind of been a theme for us for a long time, all the way back to when I started my blog. And so, you know, we've had... We've had to change our stance on some things. Some things have changed over the years as as the world has changed. Obviously, we've seen that in the last three years. But it, it, it gives me encouragement to know that if I could do it, I did not have a finance background. I didn't go to school for finance. I went to school for engineering because I knew it would make a lot of money and I didn't necessarily do it because it was a passion. Shows you what happened to that. But if I, if I could do it, if I could figure it out, and if I could just basically live on the shoulders of the giants who came before me and teach myself, then why can't other people do that too? And hopefully we've recorded enough episodes where people can kind of follow along that journey. Even if it's windy and not always organized, maybe follow along and, and find your own way to be coming past just this beginner overwhelm stage. So Dave, one of the benefits, right, of climbing on the shoulders of the people who came before us is we don't have to make nearly as many painful mistakes and we can soar to higher heights. 
So let's talk about beginners. What is the big mistakes that beginners make that really end up costing them, especially in the short term? Oh boy, there, there, there can there could be a few big, I guess, pitfalls. The first one that I think is a lot of it comes down to your mindset and the psychology of what you're doing. The a lot of beginners get super excited and they buy what everybody else is buying. And sometimes that can be great and sometimes it cannot be so great. And I'll give you an example. So during right kind of at the height of the pandemic when the market was soaring, some of my family members were buying some of the big name companies like the Pelotons of the world, you know, at very, very elevated prices. And that came, that, that came home to roost for them because they held it all the way down. And that's very common is for people to buy at the top and sell at the bottom. And that's the exact opposite way you need to do it. You need to buy it at the bottom and sell it at the top. I think a lot of people, especially at the beginning, they get caught up in the fear and the emotion of what's going on in the markets. And people, let me give you an example. Most people, when they go buy a car, they want to get a deal on the car, right? We all do. We, we don't want to buy, walk in and just buy it at sticker price. We want to have a deal, air quotes. Stocks are the same way. You buying Microsoft, you want to buy it you think, because you think it's a valuable piece of a business, but you want to buy it for less than what it's worth because it's going to appreciate in value. And a lot of people, unfortunately, will buy at the height of Microsoft's powers in the market and sell when it's not doing as well. But the, the whole crux of that is you're looking for value at a reasonable price. And that's really what Andrew and I are, are, are trying to teach. And most, uh, a lot of new investors, unfortunately, get caught in the trap of the excitement and the allure of the shiny lights and buying these companies as they're going up. But maybe they don't have a reason to go up. Maybe everything is just rising because the tide is rising. Again, Warren Buffett loves to talk about how you can really tell what people are swimming, you know, when people were swimming naked when the tide goes out, right? And it's kind of the same idea that people will ride things all the way up and then they ride it down. One of the biggest advantages individual investors like the three of us have is a long time horizon. Statistics show the longer that you hold a company, the longer you own a piece of that business, the more likely you have of having success in that investment. And I, I, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but if you look it up, if you Google that or Bing it now, it will improve drastically over the next 10 years. And that's the biggest advantage that we have over the big institutional investors because they don't have that ability to do that. And we have the ability to do that. Now, that also comes with the fact that there's going to be ups and downs. You know, Berkshire Hathaway, which is the company that Warren and Charlie Munger own, They've seen 50 to 80% drawdowns on that company. In other words, the, process, the price has dropped 50 to 80% five or six times in the 50-plus years they've been with the business. But they understood that that's part of the pain of owning individual stocks. And we will see that from time to time. I've seen it even in the short time that I've been doing it. But if you can hold for the long period and you have a great business, you're going to do well over the long period of time. So I think people get in and out too fast, and they also tend to buy on the way up as opposed to on the way down. When things are going down, a great business is on sale. And that's really when you should be looking to consider buying at that point. It just drives home this idea, Dave, that you should have held on to that game stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew, let me work this out here because we're talking about 
buying value at a discount, right? And we're talking about understanding the ups and downs and not to buy high, but to buy low and wait for it to go high to sell. Ultimately, I feel like that tips us into this place of market efficiency, especially when we're talking about beginners, right? This idea that the market is exceedingly efficient, right? You have these big investors who have a lot of money, they do a lot of research, and they sway the market a lot with their buys and their sells, which means by the time you and I, the little guy, even hears about it, the market is already self-adjusting us out of getting a deal. How does that work? Like, Are we prone to be victims of a huge amount of market efficiency, or is that hypothesis not 100% correct? I'll quote my daughter on this one. Yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we're recording this in March of 2023. We just recently had a huge panic with the banks. And one of the banks that I'm familiar with is called First Republic Bank. And they went in one day, it was like overnight, the stock went down 60%. And then I think it dropped another 50% during the day. So it was down 70 or 80% in a day. And then the ne- the very next day, it rose 50%. So it, it's still down a lot, more than 50%, throwing a lot of percentages out there. But you ask yourself, did, did the business really change that much in value in that short amount of time? And I don't know the answer to that, but there are times in the market where you might see overreactions. And this could, or maybe could not be a good example of that. The A lot of the times the market probably is efficient, but there can be value as somebody who's picking stocks to, to still earn good returns on, on a stock, even if it's efficient. So for example, to quote Charlie Munger again, he says, if you buy a stock for a very long period of time and it's earning 6% on its capital, you're going to earn around 6% on your capital. So as an example, if Apple can grow its earnings at 10% a year every year for the next 10 years, then my results are going to be somewhere similar to that. So if the market knew that Apple was going to grow at 10% a year, which is a stretch because nobody knows what the future holds, but let's say the market knew that Apple was going to grow at 10% a year. I could still buy that stock. And if it does grow that at where it's expected, I'm going to earn whatever Apple's growth rate was. So maybe that's a lot bigger than like a electric utility that might only grow, let's say, 3% a year. So both of those stocks could be efficient, but you get two very different results buying one or the other. So I think the market is efficient a lot of the time, but does that mean there's not opportunity for people who want to spend the time to research? and find good companies i think you can i think you can find good opportunities in an efficient market but it's hard because you have to pick the right businesses and you have to be right on the businesses that do continue to grow dave it's interesting what andrew kind of says and it's true is you have to be willing to spend the time right so the the default is index investing right you can take your money not spend a huge amount of time thinking about it Put your money in index funds and know that it's going to have a reasonable return if you do it correctly, right? Mm-hmm. There are people, though, lots of people who really like to pick stocks to follow the market more closely and feel like they can do better or enjoy it more or what have you. 
what type of time commitment are we suggesting? Like if you really want to go away from index funds and you want to put a decent size of your portfolio into stocks, how much time do you think your average person needs to spend researching, listening to podcasts, reading blogs, watching financial TV? Like how much of a time commitment is this? Well, that's a great question. And that's not, boy, that's an interesting question. I can only speak for, I guess I can speak for myself and I I won't speak for Andrew. My experience is, so before I started doing this full-time, which is what Andrew and I are doing full-time, I was working a nine-to-five job or even in the restaurant business, more like a -a 60-hour-a-week job. And I was probably spending close to three to five hours a week of reading, listening to podcasts, and studying to try to pick individual companies. And it the turnaround time for me was a lot longer to find an individual company. So let's say that you're trying to pick one stock a month, for example, which I think is probably a, a reasonable idea. That The idea that you could pr- probably put in 20 to 30 hours if you're working a full-time job is probably not unreasonable. If you consider the way that I did it, for example, when I was in my nine to five job, I would read annual reports or financial reports on my lunch hour. I would listen to podcasts to and from work, which for me at the time was a 45 minute to an hour commute. And I would also read blog posts and other you know, information like after my family would go to sleep. And so I would spend that time because it was a passion for me and it was something that I enjoyed. And so that was something that I did. Now, can you pick individual stocks by doing less than that? Sure, but you probably need to extend the lifetime of how long it is before you pick a stock. So let's say that you cut that time in half. I guess I would say maybe go two months before you pick an individual company because one of the things that you want to do is you want to make sure that you you understand the business model and how they make money. And sometimes that could take longer than others. And it depends on where the company sits in your circle of competence. In other words, how much you understand the business. And so I think there's that. Now, when you, when you kind of go, you know, when Andrew picks an individual stock, you know, the guy spends, you know, 50, 60 hours, you know, a week, you know, studying companies. And he and I have calls once a week where we spend an hour or two just dissecting an idea about a business and going back and forth on, on the different ideas and the different concepts of particular companies. And it's very helpful to both of us to do that. But that's, all, that, that's obviously a lot of time, and we have the advantage of being able to do this together in that respect. But you know, he spends far more time studying that part of it because of, of you know, what he's doing for our business. And that's very much a passion of his. And that's exactly what what the greats do is they spend all this time reading, 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 reading. But if you have a night, you know, if you have a full time job and a family and all those things, then you have to you have to learn how to pare it down. But I think we can all find time in the day to make things that are important to us to to make those happen. But you have to you have to also, I think, dial down the expectation of what you're trying to do. You know, you can't pick fifty stocks a month. You know, by by doing that thing, you know, looking at one or two companies a month is probably realistic if you have a family, a job, and and all those things. And that's and that's okay. This isn't a race. It's this is more of a marathon. And so, the longer you take, the better it's going to be.
We are talking to Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern, who first started their podcast, Investing for Beginners, in 2017. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern first started Investing for Beginners podcast in 2017. Although they believe the stock market is intimidating and confusing, it is key to attaining financial freedom. They're driven to help you decode the jargon of the market, investing and finance. Andrew, Dave was just saying that, you know, when you hone in on a stock that you're interested in, you might spend 50 or 60 hours researching it or at least a good deal of time. I know a lot of beginners start with one basic question. What do you look at? Like, what are those indices that us beginners should start looking at when we're thinking of a company to become an investor in? I mean, you kind of didn't like the idea of uh, know what you own, but I feel that that is a big part of finding a good business. And knowing what you own, in my mind, needs to have a bigger picture kind of viewpoint to it. I own Apple, by the way. so And I'm also an Apple iPhone user. So take that for what's worth. Mm-hmm. But if I'm an Apple customer and I like Apple Music and I like the video service that Apple has and I'm on my iPhone all day long, that's not really knowing the business. Really knowing the business would be understanding, okay, this is how much Apple makes in sales. This is how much they make in profits. These are the people who compete against Apple. These are the people who create the components that they sell that Apple puts in their iPhones. This is how I, Apple sells 
their phones to customers. Those are the kinds of things that really tell you how you know a business. And if you are trying to pick stocks in the way that Dave and I pick them, which is find good businesses and let them compound over the long term, then that that definitely needs to be a big part of the toolkit because how can you know the market's going to be crazy and the market's going to be emotional and that's just the way it is no matter how you look at it. But how are you really going to know if a business is doing well, if it's if it's succeeding, unless you understand what makes this business tick and how are those results moving over time? These are all things that the financials can tell you, but also just having a, a picture that you've painted about, about everything in the Apple ecosystem, that will help you in in deciding whether you want to keep investing in a company or you want to get rid of it and find something else. Now, Andrew, as I listen to you and I'm trying to put on my novice brain here, right? Because I've done some real thinking about this stuff. I've been you know, aware of personal finance and I talk to lots of smart people like you. But if I'm the novice listening to you, I'm saying, well, how do I find all that information? Like, How do I learn what the Apple ecosystem is and encompasses? What is the starting point, especially if you are a novice? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's tough, obviously, um, because it can very easily become the fire hydrant. I I think it starts with learning what, what are the profits of this business. Um, most of us can figure out what profit means, you know, what a company earns versus what they spend, and and that's the profit. Funny enough, the one of the bigger metrics that Wall Street focuses on is that profit number. It's called earnings per share or EPS. So you can go into Google, go into Google Finance and type in Apple, for example, and they will tell you the company's EPS earnings per share and their PE or price to earnings ratio. And basically what those two things are telling you is how profitable is Apple and then how expensive is the stock compared to its profits? So as an example, if and they're not trading like this, but if Apple was trading at a PE of 100, then for every dollar of profit, you're paying $100 to buy Apple stock. But if the PE is like a five, then you're, you're still getting that dollar of earnings, but you're only paying $5 for every dollar per share of earnings. And so that's kind of the starting point in my mind of kind of wrapping your head around businesses and you can start that profit and you can go all the way down into the weeds until you get lost but that's a good place to start and you want to see earnings per share increasing over time peter lynch to to use his name again he made a very good observation he said you can if you were to chart a lot of different stocks and you were to look at their earnings per share and their stock price in the short term it's messy but you zoom out long enough and it matches up almost perfectly for almost every company. And so if you can find those stocks that can grow their earnings per share, and you know, hopefully you're not paying like $100 for those earnings, maybe it's something more reasonable. But if you can do that, you can find great results. Dave, I want to be a little reductive here because we're talking about how we research these single stocks, but I also think we have to kind of ask ourselves, what's the goal, right? What is the end product we're looking for? Whenever we talk about the stock market, we always talk about returns. And whenever we talk about returns of 
individual stocks. We end up talking about index funds, and then we talk about whole market returns and those kind of things. So help me understand the goal of someone who picks stocks, right? One part might just be the enjoyment, right, of learning about these companies and investing in them. Is the goal to compare yourself to the whole market and say, I did better? Is the goal to own companies that you believe in? What's the long-term goal, do you think, when you're spending your hours doing this? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Andrew's daughter. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> it comes down to the idea of you're looking at you're looking at what is, you know, what is your why? What is your why? And, you know, for me, it's to grow wealth for me and for my family. And by that, I'm doing it in a method by owning individual companies, which I believe are going to perform well over a longer period of time. You can, you know, some people like to, to, to compare themselves to other investors. Some people like to compare themselves to the market indices, like the S&P 500, for example. That's a very common one. Or the overall market or the Dow. It really depends on what your goal is. Like My goal is to grow wealth for my family and to earn at least you know, 10 to 11% over the next 20 years. And that's, that's kind of my goal because I'm closer to the end than Andrew is. And so that's, that's what my goal is. And, but everybody's going to have something different. Some people are going to want to beat Warren Buffett, which good luck. I was going to say, that doesn't sound so easy. <laughs> it's not going to be, but you know, that's so, that's what some people's goals are. And it really depends on what your, what your goal is. And each individual, each individual investor needs to understand their why before they start doing this. If their why is just to get rich, then they, they need to think about how they want to get rich. And, I think when I'm thinking about investing, I'm wanting to grow wealth over a long period of time by picking individual companies because I have determined that that's the best way for me to go about doing it. And I think that by following the principles that we have taught in the class that we can that I can I can meet my goals over the next 20 years and that's and that's what I'm setting out to 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 be able to do. Do I expect that I'm going to beat Warren Buffett? No. And I don't have any grand delusions of, of, of doing that. And, but that's just, that's just the way that I'm doing. I think if you talk to every individual investor, you're probably going to get a little bit of a different answer. Andrew, give us your different answer. So if Dave was saying 10 to 11% returns, build wealth for my family, why would someone like you, or what, what is kind of your thought process when you're thinking, I'm going to spend significant time learning how to pick stocks? What's the overall goal? It's a really great question. And it is very tough because we're all different people. Like Dave's saying, we might all have different goals. So like you guys mentioned, I I run a newsletter where I pick a stock every month and I put it in a real money portfolio. I've been tracking that since I was 25 with the goal of hitting 65. And what I was trying to do there is really show that the average person can have a path to having great compounding in their life if they just follow this newsletter. So it wouldn't take you, you know, 60 hours a week or whatever. You could just follow the newsletter and follow along. And so I picked the numbers very intentionally. So if you were to follow the program, you would start with $150 a month. And the reason why I picked that number is because if we're paying for our iPhone and our our iPhone cell phone payments around 150 bucks. If you can afford that, then hopefully you can afford to invest at least that. If you were to take that 
starting at age 25 and you're going to do it until you turn 65. And if you can make 11% returns on that money, which is just 1% above what the average market return has been over, you know, 100 plus years, we've seen average market returns somewhere around 10%. So if if we can beat that by 1%, which who knows if it will happen. And, you know, obviously that's the goal. But if you can just do that, you can turn that $150 a month into $1 million. And I think that's a very worthwhile goal. And I think it's achievable for a lot of people. And so that's why I provide the service that I do. And hopefully enough people will follow along to really make an impact in this world. Dave, there have always been people interested in the stock market. There's always been individuals, professional or not, who spend time studying and investing in stocks. I feel like there was a little bit of a shift with the retail investor craze that happened with GameStop. We were laughing about GameStop and how you owned it before this whole craze. But what do you think it did to your audience? So you guys have been podcasting for a long time. You've been thinking about stocks for a long time. Had the goings on with GameStop and Reddit, did it all change the type of people who started tuning in? Do you think it changed the look of the retail investor today? I think the whole meme stock craze certainly brought a lot more focus and attention on the stock market. And I think it brought a lot of people into the market and a lot of people listening to our show that weren't necessarily interested in what the way that we're trying to teach people to learn to invest. Because a lot of the people that got into the market during that period were the beginning investors that were the, as as Warren would say, the know-nothing investors that really just wanted to get rich quick. They're looking for a way to get rich quick. A lot of the people that that climbed climbed into the crypto craze were the exact same kind of investors. They're looking for a way that they could, you know, Hey, so and so's made a lot of money. I can do it too, and it's easy. And you know, you just buy a stock, and it just goes up to the right. And unfortunately, they learn not too long after that that it doesn't work that way. And so, I think the retail investor probably—I don't think—really changed much. I just think a lot of people that maybe weren't interested in the stock market or were less interested got into it for a period, and then discovered the hard way that this is a harder game than they were being told that I think a lot of those people had, had had gotten out of the market. And you can see some of that in the data for a company like Robinhood, which was one of the traders that was catering to those people. You can see that the numbers of people that are on their platform have steadily dropped off since kind of the meme craze has died away, that a lot of those people that were investing have either gotten out of the market completely, which is a shame, or they've they've just you know gone other places. But I don't know that the, I think the people that really want to learn how to invest for the long term, and it doesn't have to, you know, I, I will say this, it doesn't have to be our style of investing. There's lots of different ways. There's ways to slice the pie to make money in, in the stock market. But I think if you really want to play the long game, then you're going to listen to kinds of the kinds of things that we're trying to teach. And, and I think that's, those kinds of people are still in the market. They were there before. They're there now. And maybe more people were attracted to it and have stayed because they like the message. Not necessarily that just we're teaching, but a lot of people are teaching that you know the stock market is is the way that you can achieve wealth over the long long term, and you can do it by letting Microsoft do all the heavy lifting. Andrew, it reminds me as we talk about all those investors who jumped in and thought it would be easy, and then found out it wasn't. Do you think most beginners underestimate how difficult it actually is? Like this idea that, okay, 
you got to really kind of pay attention. This is not just like, oh, so-and-so told me to do this. I'm just going to do it and make millions of dollars. Yeah, I I 100% believe that. And I did that myself too. I mean, when I was first beginning with the newsletter, I beat the market pretty good. And I thought I was you know, the next <laughs> Warren Buffett. And <laughs> learned obviously very quickly that that wasn't the case. Hopefully, there are more people not like me, but more who are able to learn off other people's experiences, can leverage great resources that are out there and learn that this is not an easy game. A lot of people had to learn that the hard way last year. But just because it's not easy doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money with it if you're smart and you listen to the right advice. Dave, you mentioned Robinhood, and this was the issue with you know the meme stock thing was this was a tech-enabled movement, whether the tech was Reddit, where people were discussing things, or whether it was Robinhood, where they had instant and immediate access. Tell us about fintech, financial technology. Is it a good or bad thing that's been happening over the last few years, and how is it affecting how people invest? Oh, boy, fintech. Fintech is actually kind of in my wheelhouse a little bit. This is something that I've been boring people with on the podcast for quite some time. But I think that making it easier for us to use our money to do the things that we want to do so that we can enjoy our other parts of our lives and with a better customer experience is an amazing thing. I worked in the banking industry for a while and I saw firsthand how horrible customer service could be. I came from the restaurant business where customer service was life or death. And then I went to work in the banking industry and was shocked <laughs> at the level of lack of customer service. And people were shocked by the customer service that I would give them. And I'm not saying that to praise myself. I'm just saying that when you look at the enabling of fintech, of I'm talking about companies like a PayPal or a Square or a now Block and, and other companies like that. When they have the customer's best interest, I think it's very beneficial to make it easier for us to move our money around, to spend our money, to get discounts on things, to invest. All those things, I think, have a benefit to society. My problem comes when the incentives for the business are not aligned with the customer. And that was part of, you know, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of, of, of some of my beefs with Robinhood, but. They were not aligned with what was in the best interest for their customers. And they were enabling people to spend money that they had no right spending. And it caused a lot of heartache and pain for people. And even one person even killed themselves. And so it was not a great situation. And so technology in this case, I think, was enabled with the wrong incentives in mind. And I think that caused... A lot of problems. Now, when you look at some of the other companies out there, and I could probably list 50 of them that have the right incentives and are doing it for the right reasons, then I think it's a great thing. And it could make, you know, it could remove some of the speed bumps in our lives that can allow us to go do other things, spend time with our family, you know, go do the things that we want to do, go bike riding, you know, go do your, you know, nine to five job or whatever that you really enjoy. All those things. The fintech, I think, can really help if it's aligned with doing what's best for the customers. When something like Robinhood, which was not aligned, I, then that's when I think we have problems. Speaking of alignment, Andrew, we were talking about fintech, but let's talk about the business entertainment industry. 
recently on an episode of the Daily Show, Hassan Minaj was hosting for the week and he had Kevin O'Leary on from the Shark Tank. And he really gave Kevin O'Leary a hard time about this kind of business entertainment and how there are people out there making money on giving business advice that it may not necessarily be serving your average investor out there. We talk about stuff like Jim Cramer and mad money and all that kind of stuff. Is it good or bad? I mean, do kind of like these entertainment shows, are they helping investors? Are they making things more confusing? Well, I don't want to paint it with a broad brush. I do believe there's Again, the hopeless optimist in me likes to believe that there's a lot of good people that just want, you know, they want win-win situations everywhere they go. They want to prosper in themselves and they want to help other people prosper. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of bad actors and sometimes people can get carried away. So I think education in general is good. I, I look at the way that this space, if you want to call it, financial advice or you know fintech guru whatever you want to label it i remember 10 years ago it seemed like people really kept their ideas close to the vest because it was almost like they were they were afraid of some of the it, it, i i got the sense that like 10 years ago people who knew a lot kept things close to the vest because they didn't want to empower their their audience necessarily I feel like that's shifted now and and I don't think just in finance but I see in other areas like health health and fitness there's big emphasis on educating people and letting them make their own decisions. So I think that's a trend that we're seeing broad based and I like the trend but of course whenever you have more freedom you have more avenues for people to take advantage and and it's it's very unfortunate but hopefully there'll be enough people who are in positions of power that will step up to the responsibility to make sure that the bad actors get what they deserve. Well, Andrew and Dave, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. Traditionally, especially in our community, the earn and invest community, when people really talk about these issues, they tend to paint it as, are you an index investor versus a stock picker? And what I like about today's conversation is actually, we're not really talking about that at all. In this conversation, what we're really talking about is if you want the easy button and you still want to be involved in the stock market, then you probably should be an index investor and leave it at that. If you want to pick stocks, there's totally nothing wrong with that. In fact, that may be the way for you, but you've got to put in the time and energy. There is no easy button, but if you're willing to put the time and energy into it, It sounds like it can be very gratifying, and you found in your audience, it certainly is. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you specifically which resources you would point people to, both your own and other people's, and where people can find you if they have more questions. So let's start with you, Andrew. First and foremost, what resources do you really feel a beginning investor needs? And of course, plug your own podcast. And from there, we'll ask you how people can get in touch with you. Thanks for that. Our podcast is called The Investing for Beginners Podcast, Your Path to Financial Freedom. We've done, I don't know, probably hundreds of listener Q&A by now. People write in and ask questions and we always welcome that for people to write in and you never know, maybe your question gets featured on the air. Um, So that's a place to go if you're looking for more information. I like 
Peter Lynch's book. If you, so, with the context of if you're interested in stock picking, I would go to Peter Lynch's book called Beating the Street because I feel like he talks English, which is hard to do in this world of accounting and business. And you know, I struggle with that too. But he he talks very basic English and he makes it very relatable. And there's a lot of good lessons there to kind of give you something to start down the rabbit hole. And that's that's what I would recommend. And if people want to get in touch with you specifically, how can they do that? You can reach me at my email, andrew at einvestingforbeginners.com. You could submit a listener question or ask questions in general. We'll do our best to get to you. And Dave, what resources would you point new beginners to and how can people reach out to you? I guess there's a couple things I guess I would probably look at. I'm going to do a shameless plug and plug our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We created it as as a resource or as an encyclopedia for people to be able to go and learn more about the stock market. We have this huge search bar at the top, and you can literally type in anything, and you're going to find an article helping you better explain what some of these concepts and terms are. When I started reading financial reports, I used those kinds of resources. I looked up words that I didn't understand. And so we designed this website with that kind of idea in mind. And so that's a great place for people to, to, to go to learn more stuff. I'm also going to echo Andrew with the, the Peter Lynch book, and I'm also going to throw out Warren Buffett's investing. He, he writes a shareholder letter every year. There may be some terminology that may be a little challenging for beginners, but he has a very folksy wisdom that's very easy to understand, and he explains things in a, in a concept manner that makes it easy for people to understand. And he's been writing these letters since 1967, and, you, and they're free on his website, and they're a great resource to learn more about investing. And a lot of people liken it to kind of like a, a cheater's MBA, if you will. Hmm. So, so that's those are resources. I guess to, to reach out to me, you can find me. I'm active on Twitter, and that's at a at ifb underscore podcast. And so you can find me there. I'm there a lot. And then you can also reach me via email at dave at einvestingforbeginners.com. And likewise, you can ask me questions at either place, and I'm happy to try to answer. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Yeah, it was. It was awesome. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Awesome. I leave things running just for a second or two just to catch any little bit as an after show we record. But um, no, thanks for the great conversation. I think you guys should be the place all beginners go. Like, I mean, I think your podcast is breaks down a lot of key concepts. I think you get into the weeds, but I also think you do it in an understandable way. Um, I think your philosophies make a lot of sense. Uh, again, I'm a mostly index investor, um, and I think for a certain percentage of the population, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I also think, well, I think it goes in two ways, right? So there's a lot of people who are mostly index investors who still love to listen to content like yours and then have a percentage of the portfolio they're managing on their own. And then there's certain people who just will never want to be in index funds. Um, and I think that what you guys have to teach is valuable. Thank you. I really liked your questions. I thought they were yeah. really thoughtful and yeah. it made the conversation flow really well. Yeah, thanks. I, I really like 
I love interviewing people. Like it's one of my favorite things to do. I, I felt like I had a cotton mouth today. I wasn't getting words out, but in general, I love interviewing people. And so my goal is always to find like those questions that bring out the best of what you guys have, right? That's always my goal. Um, so I'm always going to try to ask questions that just go a touch further, get, you know, get you to express something a little more because that's kind of what I want is that deeper conversation. And yeah. I think do a good job. (laughs) Well, all of us have, I mean, we all have these stories to tell. Right. And so the question is, I mean, you guys go through it too, right? When you're interviewing someone, you like, how can I say the least number of words that get people to tell like their best knowledge? Right. And so to me, it's like, how can I like find that question that gets you to say like, what's amazing about you and what your knowledge base is or, or what people haven't even heard you talk about before. Um, So I, I love interviewing people. I think it's the coolest thing. So. Yeah, you're good at it. I appreciate you saying yeah. that. And uh, yeah. podcasting was definitely made for me. Like, <laughs> it took me a while to yeah. find it, but it's definitely something I really love doing. So, yeah, you you are good at it. I agree. I agree. All I'm right. sure your I'm sure your patients enjoy your bedside manner. Yeah, well, I was quite a time. I don't see as many patients as I used to because I'm very, very part time now. But yes, I used to spend a lot of time talking to people. And, you know, the, the interviewing someone on a podcast is very similar, actually, to interviewing a patient in their in the exam room, right? You're trying to, again, ask the fewest possible questions to get them to open up and tell you what's really going on, whether that's right. symptoms or emotionally or what have you. So right. same concept. Yep. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.